Welcome to another episode of Not Your Token Minority. This week, I have got another two-parter for you, this time with my friend Kaya. When we first met, I was working as a journalist for one of New Zealand's largest media companies, and she was working for a global PR agency. I was the only Asian on my team, and she was the only one on hers. Needless to say, we had a lot to bond over. We talk in this episode about what it was like for her growing up in New Zealand as one of very few Asians in her community, then going on to work in an industry that is predominantly white, and how she started to challenge her own internalized racism that came as a result of living and working in a mostly white environment. Welcome to the podcast, Kaya, and thank you so much for coming all the way into town this morning. How have you been? Like, how's it been through lockdown and being back in New Zealand as well? Um, lockdown has been pretty good. Not a whole lot changes for me. I'm in a very fortunate position where I can contract to Canadian cannabis companies. So that kind of takes care of itself and I'm work from home. So not a whole lot is affected whether we're in level three or level one. Uh, so very lucky with that. And being back home in New Zealand has been really comforting to be in an environment where you know, your masks are not really that necessary. You don't have to worry so much when you're out in the community. And then just being amongst, you know, the familiar accent and the people has been really, really nice to come home to as well. So you were living in Canada for the past three? Yeah, almost three years. I was living in Vancouver, BC, and living and working there, having lots of fun, being immersed in another kind of culture, I guess, where there's a good mix of Pakiha and Asian and, you know, South Asian, real diverse mix of people. So how did you end up in Canada? The decision to move to Canada really came from the fact that I wanted to change my career path in a sense. I spent so much time working in PR in Auckland for, you know, alcohol companies or, you know, consumer goods and that kind of thing. And I went through some health challenges that really made me look at my life again. Um, it, it was to a point where I had burnout and I was bedridden for more than six weeks and I couldn't keep anything down. Oh man. Yeah. I, all I could really do was just sit in bed in my thoughts. Was that from stress from work or it was a mixture of um so basically the doctors said that it was a virus that took over my body because my body was on the brink of burnout slash it was already burning out and so it was the perfect combination of virus ready to you know find a home and then my body being the perfect defenseless carrier <laughs> yeah exactly but I never found out what the virus was or anything like that and the doctors just couldn't figure it out either so it was like a mixture of those, just working long hours, not really looking after myself and kind of succumbing to the pressures of that kind of environment. What was the cause of you wanting to work all those really long hours and pushing yourself like that? I think I felt like I had something to prove. You always feel that you're different and there's you almost feel like there's an expectation to perform better or to prove your worth more than everybody else that's there because you're different. And that's something I've carried through a lot from my younger years too, always being different, always being told you're different. And also knowing yourself that you kind of started on a back foot always makes you work that little bit harder to prove that you have a place there or you deserve to be there. And I think that was a real 
catalyst for me pushing myself so hard. Shall we go right back to the beginning then? Yes. Tell us a little bit about your background and how your family came here and where you grew up and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, I grew up uh, born to immigrant parents in Auckland. My parents immigrated from Japan when they were in their early 20s. And like any immigrant family or most immigrant families, they come seeking a better life for themselves and for their family and somewhere with more opportunity for themselves as well. And they found that New Zealand would be the place and they pursued tourism. And back then the economy in Japan was doing really well, you know, 20, 30 years ago. (laughs) It was still the bubble economy, right? Yeah, exactly. So tourism, you know, the busloads of Asian tourists were Japanese tourists back then. And so my parents kind of catered to that audience And I kind of grew up in that environment too of, you know, hospitality. And when I was born, my whole entire family was really my environment. And so I grew up watching Japanese TV shows and I grew up on Ghibli films and I spoke Japanese way better than I could right now. Um, and so my entire world was Japanese right until I really went to school. And I kind of remember that first day going to school and realizing I understand nothing and going from being able to communicate at that age to then being in an environment where you can't understand anything, but you also can't communicate anything that you're thinking or feeling was just a really daunting experience to go through. A huge part of that struggle is because your family actually moved to quite a white community. Totally. Where you guys were the only or one of the only Japanese families. Yeah, one of the only Japanese, but also one of the only Asian families as well, living in kind of the Fongaparoa Peninsula, which is kind of northeast of Auckland. It was also really remote. Like there wasn't a main highway that got there, you know, like that connected Auckland City to Whangaparoa. It was a really remote place to grow up. And so my school was majority Pākehā and then maybe a brown face here and there. And then there were maybe three Asian kids there. One was me. The other one I was related to, my sister. And then the other one was a family friend. So it was like (laughs) the Asian faces there are other ones that I knew. Basically family. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much family. And, you know, growing up, you'd have to deal with everything from A, picking up the language to be able to defend yourself in situations, but also learn and educate. And then also learning to kind of deal with situations like on the playground, people were constantly like pulling their eyes, you know, apart and slanting them and making fun of your appearance or the way you said certain words. Or I just remember the first time I took sushi to lunch for school and everyone just like stopped the whole room went silent and everyone was like, what is that black thing? Like, that is so gross. And I just remember going home and being like, you can never put sushi in my lunch ever again. But it was something that I was excited for that morning. Like, I have sushi in my lunch. and Isn't it crazy, though, how people just have sushi for lunch all the time now? Yeah. Like, all people. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that always kind of irritates me as well because it's like you probably made fun of that Asian kid who brought sushi for lunch when you were a kid but mm-hmm. now you love it <laughs> yeah and now it's like the healthy healthy yeah. food to eat is sushi mm-hmm. or you know rice and something but that didn't even stop within a within a school environment as well right like all those microaggressions that happen when you're younger 
they just take form into other things as you get older. And just because I was in an older work environment and people were supposedly more mature, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't face racism in, in those areas as well. And partly because of going through that at such a young age of knowing that you're different and knowing that you stand out, I tried so hard. I did everything I could to just not stand out. Anything that I could adopt, whether it was a food, um, whether it was, you know, my own opinions of what I liked and didn't like, I just tried everything to be as white as I possibly could. Like trying to eat cereal when I'm lactose intolerant for breakfast because cereal and toast were the acceptable things that you could eat for breakfast versus rice or udon or something in the morning was really foreign to a lot of people. So did you feel like you had to be a completely different person? For sure. Like I tried to disassociate myself from my parents as much as I could. I wouldn't speak Japanese in front of my white friends or, you know, eat any foods that were too Japanese. But, you know, I would I would stick to teriyaki chicken if that was safe enough in that environment, you know, but I wouldn't go any further into eating like sashimi or something. Random thought. But yeah, when I was living in Japan, I don't remember teriyaki chicken being like a thing ever i don't think it is it's a it's one of those like it's like the indian butter chicken is the teriyaki chicken yeah like you would never go into an izakaya and see like teriyaki chicken on the menu it's so weird like maybe they use like a sauce like the sauce i mean soy sauce sugar mirin is like the base of japanese cooking yeah that's essentially what teriyaki sauce is right Mm, pretty much but I just find that so funny. I know, exactly. So if it was accepted in that environment, then I would be okay with it. But, you know, even things like fish, I would avoid eating any kind of fish because I knew that my Pākehā friends all thought fish smelt gross and tuna was, you know, yuck. And I didn't believe that, but I just convinced myself that I did. And so I had so much of my own internalized racism right until I was, you know, not that long ago, 20... 22, 23, when I really started to not be okay with it. I started to feel really unhappy and I couldn't identify what that unhappiness was. And it was really because I was neglecting such a huge part of what made me unique, but also what made me, me. I think when people hear this, they will probably relate to it so much because I think so many of us who did grow up in a society where it's not our own culture or people or language can feel that struggle, especially us as third culture kids. Like it's such a balancing act and struggle wanting to be accepted and to fit in, but also kind of like loving your own culture as well. Like wanting to celebrate it, but feeling like you're not able to Mm -hmm. because it's not reflected in the society around you, in the media around you, in like the people and friends around you. How do you think that, affected your relationship with your parents? It definitely affected the relationship with my parents in a sense that they were kind of excluded from certain things of my childhood that maybe other parents had been involved in. To give an example, and this is obviously, you know, in a also privileged lens where you have parents that are able to come to an assembly, you know, at the time to see you get an award or a graduation or those sorts of things. But And my parents would get a letter to say, you know, your daughter is receiving a bloody blah. It'll be presented at this assembly. And my mum would ask, like, can I come? And I'd be like, no, 
<laughs> you can't come. And so I would just collect it on my own and versus other people that had their parents there. And I think, yeah, there were those sorts of things that maybe they w- definitely would have wanted to be involved in, but also respected like, okay, she's going through her own thing. So we're just going to let her figure that out. And so I was lucky that they gave me that space, but I feel, yeah, it makes me feel sad that they didn't get to be part of that when I was younger. Do you feel like it was quite a lonely experience growing up? I do feel like it was a lonely experience because at the time you didn't really have anyone else that was having these conversations. And I think the first time for me that was a real penny drop moment of, wow, I'm not alone, was reading Trevor Noah's Born a Crime Mm -hmm. and where he talks about, you know, being half white, half black and an apartheid and his kind of cultural identity crisis and then learning about all the things that David Chang, the chef, went through, you know, from Momofuku and hearing how he had the exact same emotions of not wanting to take Korean food to lunch because everyone complained it stank or worrying about, you know, what your house smelled like when friends came over because people might call me like, oh, it reeks of soy sauce or like, you know, going to turn on the TV and just hoping and praying that the Japanese TV show wasn't going to come on because then you'd have to like flick the channel as quickly to an English one as you could or else people were going to make fun of you and they did they would laugh and like you know try and mimic or imitate whatever that they heard that was from the foreign language so do you think it's necessarily anyone's fault that we had those experiences or that kids made fun of the way you said certain words or the foods that you ate I don't think you can blame any one thing per se But I think there's a responsibility, like, even when we look at Aotearoa and the, I guess, the population that have lived here before Tauiwi came in, you know, people like us, there was already Māori people living here, and then Pākehā came after that. But then the dominant culture has immediately become Pākehā, and a lot of the Māori values and culture has been really shrunk in terms of its voice. And I think if there was more education just around even two different cultures coexisting and what those two different cultures look like, it may open people's minds up to like, oh, I'm not the only thing that exists here. What I see as right is not the only thing and is not the only way that people see things because I think that's the beauty of what travel gives people if you're lucky enough to be able to do that. You know, you immerse yourself into a different world or a different country where they have different rules and different societal norms and you go, wow, what I knew was normal and what I knew society was kind of structured around is completely different here, but it's still functioning completely fine. And I think the more education we can do around learning about Māori culture and what exists here and the kind of communities that they have and their beliefs and what those are the foundations of, I think, would help. Yeah, there's it's so multifaceted and it's not just one thing, right? Like so mm-hmm. much plays into people's understandings and perceptions and also how they respond to difference and like things that aren't like them. Mm. And yeah, I do agree, like, I think travel 
and being able to see how other people live is so important. But, you know, everyone has the internet. Mm-hmm. Google. Even, like, Twitter, Instagram, yeah, Facebook, they all have such great resources. Totally. They're there if you want to look at them, you know? That's your choice if you want to choose to continue living in, I don't know, ignorance. Your own bubble. (laughs) Your own bubble, then that's your choice too. Yeah, I agree. But, yes. Anyway, (laughs) continuing on. So, um, even when you went to university, you didn't feel more acceptance I think there's two parts. There was also, even when I was in university, I wasn't really sure of what my voice was. I wasn't, I hadn't found my voice. I also wasn't really sure of who I, who I am and who I was and what made me who I am. And so going into university was still a real kind of teething time of getting into my own self, even though at the time I thought I was totally a hundred percent myself at the time, even, you know, friendship groups at the time really influenced the character that I was. And so I wasn't still comfortable really leaning into my Asian side and I would still try and just fit in to the more Western shape that you had to, yeah, the Western box that you kind of had to fit into, uh, to be accepted. And even then I still found it a bit difficult because amongst, you know, university, I did a bachelor of communications majoring in public relations. And as you filter down into that, it just becomes very white, but also a lot of people are upper middle class, um, Pakeha, they come from a certain community and certain, yeah, they've abide by certain social rules, etc. And so things that I did, I remember just, you know, sitting at a table and someone just making a comment like, oh, you're one of those people. And I was like, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. And I had no idea what that meant. And I'm still picking up, you know, like, like you said, kind of being a bridge between two to three cultures, you're constantly having to remind yourself like okay what was socially acceptable here and and what are the rules in this one and and you're you're constantly having to learn through mistakes or through your own observations of what they are and that still continues but at uni I felt more of a need to still assimilate more to Pakeha culture rather than leaning into my Asian side. So you're journey through university was very white and then when you entered the workforce you entered into an industry that is very white and I know this too because when I worked as a journalist here I dealt with a lot of PR people so that gave me quite a good indication of the makeup of the industry so talk me through what it was like for you being a young Asian woman in a predominantly white upper middle class would you say industry? Yeah. Um, it was difficult because I guess for me, because I had come from a majority Pakeha schooling life through to majority Pakeha university, then into a workforce that was majority Pakeha, it was kind of like, oh, this is all how I've predicted, you know, mm-hmm. the, the environment wasn't any different to what I've been in. I struggled with certain social situations. I struggled with certain things that happened within that environment that I knew I didn't like, 
but I could do nothing about because I didn't feel like I had a place or a voice to raise certain concerns. So if I saw microaggressions, whether they were towards me or towards other people, I was the kind of perfect model minority where I would just kind of keep my head down and just thought if I don't, if I don't make a fuss about something, then I won't be pulled up for anything. And that means that my job will be secure and I will be fine kind of thing. There were definitely things that happened where I wished now in retrospect would have been able to say something, but I also wasn't in a place where I was so comfortable with my own identity that I could have spoken up and been okay if that was, that did cost my job. I remember we used to exchange quite lengthy Facebook messages <laughs> and I remember you told me about quite a few of these microaggressions that happened to you when you were working like there was one where you were mistaken for another Asian girl who worked in the same building yeah I guess the microaggressions come anything from you know someone making a comment that I'm eating rice for lunch again or you know being one of very few Asian women in a building actually one of two Asian women in a, in the building where I worked that other people within the environment or from other offices would call me the other person's name. And it didn't click for me either. I didn't realize why people were calling me this name. And weirdly, I was also answering back to it because I didn't know what was going on <laughs> oh, no. until I met this other Asian girl. And I was like, you're so-and-so. I understand now why I'm being called so-and-so except for the fact that we look nothing alike. <laughs> yeah, it goes to that such, you know, that typical stereotype of, oh, all Asians look alike because we all have black hair and whatever. Yeah, we're roughly the same height <laughs> and and maybe roughly the sk- same skin tone. Yeah. You know, it goes from that to actually there were certain times in an environment where I understood like, okay, sometimes this is the root of the problem in terms of the inclusivity, but also discrimination issues is that, you know, I heard one person and this comment really stuck with me because it was like a very eye opening moment for me. But one person in the office environment mentioned, you know, I forget that racism happens. Wow. And at that moment I was like, wow. It really took me back because it it showed me like nothing in their day-to-day ever reminds them that they're that different versus for me, it's a daily occurrence. You know, it could be anything from being stared down at when you're driving through to, you know, someone in a shop not acknowledging you, but they're having a great conversation with another Pākehā woman. And when they leave, they still don't acknowledge you or make eye contact or those sorts of things. And then there are you know, when it goes deeper into certain things, there can be financial impacts too, um, to a point where I found out that, you know, quite a few people in the office had bonuses, but I only found out that I didn't get one because someone mentioned like, oh, didn't you get a bonus? And I was like, Hmm. no, I didn't. Interesting. That is very interesting. Do you think it was race motivated? I don't know. If it was race motivated, I don't know if there were other motivations to that, but I also know what my performance was the year that closed um, and understanding where, where my billings were at and to know that other people still got bonuses, but I somehow missed out 
even based on my performance. Like you'd think those are performance based things, but if it's not performance based, then what else is it? And I don't know what that, what else is, and I'm not going to make assumptions on that, but it's just a matter of fact that I know that I didn't get one versus other people in the office that did. So. So was it during that time that you started to realize how uncomfortable all of this was making you? Absolutely. The more and more the microaggressions started to pile up, the more I found it really hard to be in that environment. And that also, I think, was taking such a toll on my own self or like spirit in a way, because I was suppressing something that was just so tied to the inner core of myself and not speaking up and defending myself was really, really difficult. And it doesn't help that, you know, most of these big corporates, and I'm just being really blanket general about corporates, they have these diversity and inclusion, like boards or organizations that they bring in to kind of make them feel like they're doing something. But when you look at the office in general, you're like, I understand that you have this council who are also majority Pākehā and like upper class, that can't translate then into diversity. Like you can't just create a council and then expect something to happen unless you're looking at, okay, we need to hire more diverse team members and you can't just have an excuse like, well, none of them are applying. It's very performative, isn't it? A lot of the efforts (laughs) in air quotes Mm -hmm. that a lot of organizations make. And there really needs to be diversity at all levels throughout the hiring process as well. Yeah. And even in senior leadership, you know, they they don't, at the time, I didn't feel like they, they really took accountability for other senior team members who may be making those microaggressions, you know, because we have an open plan office. Most, most agencies have open plan offices. And so you hear everything, all the comments that are being made and, you know, looking for a flat, my whole entire office was really just just stunned that I couldn't find a flat when other people found it much easier to find a flat or at least get interviews for flats. And I was just saying, I've been applying for like three months. I haven't heard anything back. And, you know, someone will make a comment like, oh, maybe you should just try changing your name. Oh, no. <laughs> and I just took that like, wow. Yeah. And I, I, I just, all I could respond with, Maybe I'll try that. Oh, no. (laughs) You know, but no one, no one says, no one in senior leadership is going to be like, hey, that's not quite right. But also, I think these conversations are only really coming to light now that people realize, oh, that actually wasn't a good thing to say. And I think so long as those, you know, people are still doing their own work and learning and unlearning a lot of stuff too. Like I had to unlearn a lot of my own internalized racism about myself, you know, disassociating myself from people that I deem too Asian, which I don't even know what that is. It's just Mm. an assumption. Yeah. Um, And even just the impacts of my own internalized racism and what that did for potential diverse candidates in the industry, you know, like I would hear people making comments about someone's name you know, maybe an intern who was 
a different ethnic minority and they would say his name multiple times because they just can't get it right. Or, you know, comment on what they might be wearing, etc., but not understanding that, you know, this person doesn't come from a level of generational wealth or even just an understanding of social norms within a Western world. And so he's going to do some things that are strange. And I see I saw things that were such a reflection of things that I've been through, but I didn't feel like I was in a position to help because I felt if I helped this person, then I'm going to be looped in with them. And then I'm going to have to deal with a lot of the backlash or um, teasing or all those sorts of things. And that's still within a work environment. When I got really sick and I had all this time, more than six weeks being bedridden, just in my thoughts, I thought about if this was the end, what would I have changed? And then when I put myself in that position, I thought I would be much more truer to who I am. And then it made me realize why am I trying to please so many white friends that I have trying to be more like them, trying to think more like them when really what makes me unique is that mix of culture. And that's what brings me an edge on other people. And that's also who I am. I can't change that. So why am I trying so hard? And the moment where I realized I need to find more friends who are like me, that's when it really started to change. And I then started to accept, okay, I'm bilingual. I can speak two languages. I love dipping into cuisines of, you know, of both sides. And I appreciate both sides just as much that I don't have to lean into one and neglect the other. And as soon as I started to do that and I was more open to then making friends who were Asian and or just non non Pakiha, really. That was a real turning point for me. And also I think the I mentioned before, but the Born a Crime book with Trevor Noah, that was like the first catalyst of me starting to think about my own cultural identity. And then it wasn't until I went through all of those work things and really shifted my career path to try and pursue something that I thought would help people more because that's something I really wanted to do. That's when I really leaned into myself. And when I arrived in Vancouver, I kind of had this opportunity to just strip everything I knew about myself, everything that I'd tied myself to in terms of a character as a person. I still had my values, but to to keep those values much closer to me and really define myself by those um, and not be too concerned about also what other people care about. I think that's such a huge and important step, actually recognizing that you have internalized racism, but then taking that step to actually accept it and then correct it. Like... (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes when I hear these stories, I'm just like, look at what we have had to go through Mm. to find our identities. Totally. Like going from, you know, making fun of someone who speaks worse English than you to actually understanding that's really racist to my own race. And then changing from like, I'm going to disassociate you because you're going to make me look real Asian to like, oh, I'm going to help you. Like, I want to help you because I know exactly how you feel. And I think that was the hardest thing for me was I knew exactly how they felt, but my internalized racism stopped me from doing anything about it because I cared more about what other people would think about me 
than doing what would be second nature to me is to help the other person because I know that they're struggling. So that was a, that was definitely a big thing. And even just embracing my features. Like I just remember when I was younger and I would go to sleep, I would just wish, I would wish to the stars that I would wake up white like just pray. <laughs> Same. I used to fantasize about being biracial because <laughs> I was like, mm, like, wouldn't it be great if I was like half Chinese and like half European? <laughs> How yeah. exotic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> exactly. Or like just half anything so you could mask the Asian part yeah. of you. Yeah. Even going to Vancouver and arriving in such a multicultural city where you know, like I would ask a Pakeha colleague, like, oh, what are you doing for, like, what are you doing tonight? She'd be like, oh, I think me and my boyfriend are going to go get pho because, like, we haven't had it this week and I'm just really craving it. And I was like, oh, whoa, <laughs> like, you even know what that is? Like, that was really surprising to me. So before we talked about this conversation mm-hmm. at our previous catch up, I had no idea just how, like, Pakeha, your community and circle of friends was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It did take me a really long time. Like it really wasn't until I moved to Vancouver and found friends there who had similar experiences growing up and were from mixed cultures. They would speak their mother tongue at home, but then, you know, kind of knew what kind of social norms were within the society that they lived in and could bridge themselves between the two of them really smoothly and had really figured it out. And it just blew my mind. I was like, wow. And you've been comfortable being like this since you were born. And they were like, yeah, like no one really made fun of the food I ate. Like my Vietnamese friend, she's like, yeah, no one really made fun of the food I ate. Or if anything, they wanted to always eat my food and I'd have to like protect it. (laughs) And, but the beauty of Vancouver and how I see it is there there are a few more generations ahead in terms of the mixture. So even a friend of mine, her boyfriend's grandma is Chinese, but she was speaking fluent English to all of us. Mm. And I was like, this is such a trip. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But they have that. So, you know, entire families with like, you know, Asian grandparents all the way through to like young grandkids, they're speaking Chinese and English at the same time, or like Mandarin and English at the same time. I'm really interested in how they have managed to maintain all the cultures and been able to pass it down through generations. Cause I think it does kind of get diluted the further you go down, mm-hmm. but I would hate for my children to not have a connection with their Chinese heritage. Mm. So I, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. I'm sure it's a challenge as well for the parents to totally. instill that cultural, that multicultural understanding yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think the cool thing about how Vancouver is, is even though it's very mixed, there's areas where, you know, like this is the area where a lot of the Greeks are. And that's where all the really good Greek food is. This area is like where a lot of the Italian stuff is. And so that's where the great Italian restaurants are. And so it's kind of divided into like, you know, places have a Chinatown and a little Japan or whatever, but they have those kind of pockets within the city as well. But then the people still kind of mix, which is really cool. And 
I think it's definitely something to aspire to, right? Hopefully in a few generations, Auckland will be like that Mm. as well, like truly fully with all these communities, but also being supportive of each other's communities as well. Um, And where kids don't feel like they have to pretend to be someone who's not them. Mm. (laughs) Exactly. I, I fully agree with that. Thanks for listening to part one of Kaya's story. Make sure you tune in next week to catch part two, where we'll dive more into her work around cannabis education and also about her time living abroad in Canada. And don't forget to share, rate and follow if you haven't done so already.